Hello, and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. And today's flick was the 1985 film Fright Night, which, if you're like us and you grew up in the 80s, going to video rental stores, there's absolutely no way you could have missed this movie. I think this is like the poster of choice that was up in the horror rental section. Uh, was that your experience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the the uh, cover art always stood out. It was great uh, artwork. I really liked it. Yeah, it's that creepy woman um, kind of in the clouds, but she's got these giant mouth full of fangs, uh, and it's over a house. Uh, really intriguing cover, really intriguing thing, but I have to admit, when I was a kid in the 80s, I, didn't, I never rented this movie. I never saw it once. I didn't either. Isn't that so weird? I remember the <laughs> being so drawn to the cover, and for some reason, unless I'm just forgetting, and I did... Um, but I don't remember seeing it until I was an adult. That's really kind of bizarre, a bizarre coincidence. Well, you know what it is for me? I, I was never, like, a huge fan of vampire movies. I mean, I liked vampire movies, but it wasn't, like, the thing I was going to choose. And this, when you pick up the cover, and especially when you look at the back, uh, you instantly know, oh, this is going to be a vampire movie. And I thought, ah, let's go for some monsters, let's go for some ghouls, let's go for some ghosts, let's go for something a little different. And that's really one thing this movie is, is different, especially for its time, I think. Um, Yeah, it's a vampire movie, but especially in 1985, I don't think you'd ever really seen a vampire movie quite like this one, because it's, it's billed as a horror comedy, and yes, there are comedic elements about it, there are lots of comedic elements about it, Um, but it takes place in modern day suburbia, But it's also one of these cases where we know who the vampire is, and somebody knows who the vampire is. And the whole problem is, hey, the vampires moved next door. What are we going to do about it? And so, uh, you know, you see this kind of trope a lot now where, oh, the the zombie's next door, the vampire's next door. It's become kind of a thing. In fact, uh, a few years after this, the Burbs uh, really took this idea and ran with it and went totally goofball comedy with it. Uh, but also took a different take for it. And and this movie never gets goofball comedy. Uh, One thing I think that's really cool about this movie is that it has a lot of fun with this vampire genre, but it never makes fun of it. Uh, It never once has this tongue-in-cheek attitude about vampires. It's pretty deadly serious while still managing uh, to, to be funny and to be interesting, don't you think? Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that. I was reading some stuff about it, and I, I read that Chris Sarandon, who plays the main vampire, um, Jerry Dandridge in the movie, when he was given the script, uh, he had had a bad experience uh, in the only other horror movie that he had done up to that point, and he really wasn't interested in doing horror anymore. <clears throat> but he read the script and uh, was really intrigued by the story and, and exactly what you said. He liked that they were having fun with the genre without making fun of it. Uh, And he really liked it and agreed to do it and ended up having a really good experience and ended up working with the writer slash director uh, again afterwards. Uh, Tom Holland. Tom Holland, right. And this was his first uh, film that he directed. He had written on some films. He had even, uh, he was an actor in some uh, films before this. But this was his first uh, stab at directing and he wrote the script having that in mind that he wanted to direct it. He was in, he wanted to somehow he just came up with this idea that he wanted to combine a vampire story with 
the boy who cried wolf story. Um, and he wanted to kind of set it in a realm of quasi reality, which is why he picked the suburbia setting. Um, and that's really, I hadn't ever thought of it that way. The, the boy who cried wolf aspect of it, but that's really what it is. Um, because from the very beginning, the, the main character, um, Charlie Brewster played by William Ragsdale, he realizes that the guy who's moving in next door to his home, his, his family home, is a vampire. And, and he knows it right away. And he does try to tell other people. But, of course, nobody believes him. Uh, and it's an interesting premise. Uh, I liked it, too. Well, and I think his character, too, is something that horror fans can really relate to. Uh, here's the guy who, in the very opening scene, we're getting the slow sweep through the neighborhood, which apparently is the same um, neighborhood's uh, back lot that uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes was shot in at the Disney Studios. I read that. <laughs> yeah, I read that. That's really interesting. You know, it looked familiar, but, you know, I thought, oh, it's just because it's, you know, typical suburbia. But I, I read that too, and that's uh, another favorite movie of mine, so it was kind of a neat little bit of trivia. Oh, yeah, it was really neat, yeah. And, and the camera swoops through this neighborhood, and slowly you hear these these sounds and these noises that at first you're not sure where they're coming from. Then you realize it's from a television in this boy's bedroom. Of course, his bedroom's on the top floor of the house, and... and uh, He's making out with this girlfriend, Amy, on the floor while the television is going. And what's playing on the TV is one of those late-night horror movie shows that used to be on when we had public television and we all watched it. Uh-huh. Which was a, where there's a horror host. And in this case, the horror host is Mr. Vincent. a Peter Vincent, I think. And uh, Right. And his shtick is that he's a vampire hunter and also apparently has played in these films as well. And as a vampire hunter, as the Van Helsing type character, and I guess that's really the only role he knows and does. And now, our host, Peter Vincent. This is Peter Vincent, bringing you Fright Night Theater. Charlie, Ah. Peter Vincent's on. Forget Peter Vincent. But you love him. But now, but I love you more. <laughs> and it's it's really neat how this movie sets it up, where it introduces us right away to that character, who later becomes you wouldn't guess it, but later be, has a very pivotal role in the film, and right. also introduces us to this boy and this girl. And this boy, unlike any other teenage boy I know, seems to be almost more obsessed with uh, with I guess horror, you could say, than his own girlfriend at times. Right. He's trying to convince her, you know, to go further, to go all the way. She finally acquiesces, but about that time he notices something strange happening out the window and sees that they're carrying a coffin in next door. And that uh, piques his interest, and that sets off this whole chain of events. But what I think is neat about it is that, uh, again, as a horror fan, I immediately started relating to this character just because he's into horror, right? And so yeah. it sets up this kind of likable, uh, relatable guy right up front for the kind of audience that the movie is going for. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, the horror host that I think of from when we were kids um, is Elvira. Uh, and I love her. Um, but that's the, the type of thing that this show, Fright Night, that Peter Vincent hosts is. Um, and uh, apparently to host this show, he's reprising a character that he played a long time ago, um, this vampire hunter character. The character is played by Roddy McDowell, um, who is an excellent and very recognizable actor. Um, But the inspiration 
the name Peter Vincent is actually a combination of Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. And um, the writer wrote the role with Vincent Price in mind. He wanted Vincent Price to play the role. But Vincent Price at that time was older and his health was starting to fail and he had become a little bit disenchanted um, with the horror genre because he felt that he was being typecast in every role. Uh, And so he was very reluctant to take any roles. uh, So they couldn't get him. And when Roddy McDowell was cast, he decided to take the character in a little bit uh, different direction. Not the kind of good established actor that Vincent Price was, but instead he envisioned the character as being more of an actor who was never any good, um, who just was kind of a a flash in the pan for a moment um, and is now um, older and is uh, struggling and is really just trying to cling to his last little bit of fame by doing um, these late night shows on public access. And, you know, Vincent Price is amazing and I can't imagine how him being in this movie would have changed it. But I think that it would have been very different. And I really like the way Roddy McDowell plays it. He plays it as kind of incompetent. Um, he was inspired by uh, the Cowardly Lion from The Wizard of Oz and, and, and based a lot of his performance on that. Um, and he's, uh, I guess he's a little bit flat as a character, but Roddy McDowell, the actor, brings so much presence um, to the screen that, he really makes it a lot of fun. You know, it would have been really easy for him to go a little goofball with this or for him to come across as anything but warm and genuine. But yet in this film, he never, you know, if Vincent Price were in this, he would have overshadowed everybody. Uh, He would have just been so distracting. And Vincent Price always, even as a villain, plays his characters with a wink. I mean, it's just kind of a part of his personality uh, that there's that sly smirk there that betrays a certain a certain look and a certain feel that would have, as you said, brought something completely different to this movie. What's really neat about Roddy McDowell playing this is the heart and earnestness behind it and the fact that you never once... You feel like this character is a little pathetic, just like he's in a pathetic situation, but he's not wallowing around in self-pity every day. You know, you you get the feeling that obviously deep down inside this is depressing for him, but this is a role uh, in his life that he's come to terms with, that he's always going to be kind of this washed-up ham actor who uh, is really not going to do much else, and he's... I wouldn't say he's fine with it, but he's more or less comfortable in that skin. Yeah, it, it's it's just a really great character. And from what I read, Tom Holland said the movie, the, the script didn't really come together for him until he came up with this character. And he said once once he came up with this character, he'd been mulling over this this idea for 10 years. And once he came up with this character, Vincent, and realized that he gave the movie the heart that it needed, uh, he wrote the script in three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning, since you'd brought him up earlier, Tom Holland, the director, had also been a little um, disappointed by the adaptation of the only horror movie he had written before this, uh, and that's why he wanted to direct this one so badly. And uh, just coincidentally, the movie he was disappointed in and the movie that Chris Sarandon was in and he was disappointed, they're not the same movie, but they were directed by the same director. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? It is. It is crazy. Um, You know, I think that I read that um, they were pretty, they went through a pretty stringent casting process. Um, They wanted to make sure that they got the right person. 
um, uh, William Ragsdale, who plays Charlie, he had to go through several callbacks um, before he actually got the role. And other up-and-coming stars had auditioned for the role, too, um, most notably probably Charlie Sheen. Uh, and they just decided that Charlie Sheen, his look was too tough. Like, he looked too much like a hero. Um, and William Ragsdale looked like somebody who could more believably be find himself in peril. And then the last person that was cast, if I remember correctly, was uh, Amanda Bierce, who plays the role of Amy, the girlfriend. Uh, and she's, if, if you're a kid of the 80s like we are, you'll recognize her right away. She played Marcy Darcy on Married with Children. Yeah. She was hilarious on that show. <laughs> um, and then the other somewhat principal actor um is the character that plays evil ed evil ed is charlie's friend i guess even though it seems like they argue quite a lot um and he's played by stephen jeffries i remember you know we there's the iconic cover art for this uh, movie but then i read that um for a re-release they changed the cover art and put a picture of evil ed on the the cover and i i vaguely remember that what what I remember um, Stephen Joffrey's more from, though, back then, was he was on another uh, box art for another horror movie called 976 Evil. Yeah. Um, and I don't even know if I've ever seen that movie, but I vividly remember that cover with, with Stephen Joffrey's in, like, demon makeup on a telephone. Um, and yeah. I guess this – he had worked, you know, uh, Jeffries had worked um, and, and, you know – was I don't want to say a rising star because he never really rose that far, but he had been working in the industry. And when he got called into audition, um, he thought that he would be reading for the Charlie Brewster uh, part and was disappointed when he found out that um, he would be playing the evil Ed character because he couldn't imagine what they saw in him for that character. I find the evil Ed character in this movie to be one of the most annoying, obnoxious characters ever portrayed on screen. (laughs) (laughs) We're introduced to him pretty early on, you know, uh, Charlie and Amy are making out, like you said, he gets distracted by what's going on next door and she eventually storms out. Um, The next morning we meet him, I I think uh, really early on, and and he's just obnoxious. Yes, I I just, like I've seen this movie once before, but it's been a really long time ago, and I don't remember just finding this guy so grating. And I don't know if it's it's the acting choice or if that's the way that he was meant to come across. Um, and I, I kind of think it's the latter. I think he was supposed to to be that obnoxious, but um, oh man, the guy just drove me nuts. Um, Stephen Joffrey's, like I said, he went on to do Nine Seven Six Evil, but then his star really dimmed, um, and he ended up uh, in gay porn. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of his his career trajectory, his calling, um, apparently. <laughs> but in, yeah, yeah. Well. Um, we do first see him um, in the high school, I think, uh, when he's walking down the uh, hall. This movie, thankfully, only has one of these obligatory "we're walking down the hall in high school" scenes, and you don't. It's right. unlike all the other movies; you don't get to meet all these crazy characters. It's really boils down to these four characters: Charlie, Amy, Evil Ed, which Evil is like his nickname, I guess. And there's right. really no explanation for that. Uh, Jerry Dandridge, who's the guy next door. Mr. Vincent, uh, who's and then uh, Jerry Dandridge's assistant, uh, who 
familiar assistant, whatever you call it, who comes into play a little later. Right. I completely agree with you about Evil Ed. And yet he's one of the most unique of these obnoxious characters. And again, it's another thing that sets the movie apart. It, it, there are a lot of these standard 80s tropes in this film, although they seem to be a little more downplayed in this movie than in others. But the one thing you get is the nerdy friend. Except in this case, right. the nerdy friend isn't a likable nerdy friend right he's not no right the guy who's cute and who's clever and who yeah he's nerdy but he's just inches away from being popular you know at least you figure well he's probably popular in his circles because he's got this natural wit and he has this charm of his own and this comedy that no nerd in my high school ever had you know right right normally they're uh, they, you know, as though nerds are like a thing, but <laughs> right. <laughs> but when you think of, of I, the, I totally count myself in that camp. So, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I'm I, the same I, way. We, when we say that, we say it with love. We do, we do, and and I don't think either of us were this person, but we definitely had this this uh, hierarchy, if you will. And there was always that kid who was so socially awkward that the more he tried uh, to be funny, the more awkward and horrible it was, right? It just, everything about him just reeked of there's something wrong with this guy. And it is exactly how how evil Ed comes across. Not His laugh is annoying. Um, The way he talks is annoying. The things he says are annoying. Why didn't he tell us he was going to spring a pop quiz? Well, that's the point to a pop quiz, Brewster, to surprise you. Thanks, teach. Hey, Amy. Amy! She finally find out what you're really like. Buzz off, evil. Call me anything you want. Only you're the one failing trig, not me. And you just can't even imagine that he's his friend. And actually, I can't say that the movie really paints him as his friend too much, more than than this leech that just kind of hangs out with him. Um, it's not like yeah. Charlie dislikes him. Obviously, he's the first person he goes to when he suspects that his friend is a vampire. But at the same time, you don't see a lot of scenes of them buddy buddying at the co- at the coffee shop. You know, um, he's mm-hmm. really only there when he needs him, in a sense, which is tends to be how these people get treated. You know, uh, right. It's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting character. It's definitely a memorable character, and I agree with you 100%. Oh, yeah. It's one of the most annoying guys to ever see on screen. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's probably – yeah. I would say that he's probably one of the more memorable parts of this movie. Like if you were to strike up a conversation about this movie with somebody who'd seen it, I think that that's one of the first things that you would think of. Um, so you know, maybe we have to credit – the guy for uh, at least being memorable in that way. Um, the the story, you know, I, I found myself taking all these notes and trying to keep track of the plot um, because the the story moves at a quick pace and things keep happening. You know, it, it never drags, or at least I didn't feel like it did. Um, and you know, it's it's an hour and forty five minute movie. Um, sometimes when you get up to that and closer to the two hour range. Um, you're sometimes dealing with movies that probably should have been cut a little bit, but this one, it, it, it never gets boring. Things continue to happen. Um, the next morning after the whole makeout, uh, problem, um, <laughs> Charlie, uh, gets up, um, and he talks to his mom about, um, there's a new guy that moved in next door and the mom says, yeah, I don't know anything about him except he's got to live in Carpenter. So my luck, he's probably gay, uh, which I thought was kind of a, a funny and, and 
like the, a joke that I didn't expect to hear in, in 1985. But as, as um, Charlie goes out on his way to school, he sees this hot blonde lady um, going into the house next door. Uh, and then, or maybe it's not in the morning, I don't know, but he sees her going in. And later that night, he hears a scream. And on the news the next morning, he hears that there was a body found, or actually there have been, there's been more than one body found, and both of them have been mutilated and decapitated. So the next time he gets home, he goes out uh, and, and kind of is snooping around. He saw that this coffin was unloaded into the basement, and the basement has outdoor, outdoor access. And it looks like he's going to try to go down there and check it out. But we see that this other guy, who we find out his name is Billy, um, he's indoors painting all the windows black. But he sees Charlie through the window and goes out and kind of warns him to stay away. Hey, kid. What are you doing? Nothing. Oh, yeah? Would just make sure that it stays that way. Billy is played by Jonathan Stark, who I recognized immediately. And I, so I went to IMDb to see what it was I knew him from. Um, and he had lots of credits and things that I recognized, but I didn't realize for a while that I was looking at his writing credits because that's what came up right away. I guess he's um, more known in Hollywood for writing. Uh, he was the uh, he wrote for Ellen DeGeneres' sitcom back in the day and, and guest uh, appeared on that a couple of times. Um, he was the creator, apparently, of According to Jim, um, the sitcom with uh, Jim Belushi. When I finally remembered or finally figured out that I was looking at his writing credentials, I flipped over to his acting credentials, um, and I, I realized that what I recognized him from was House 2, uh-huh. uh, which was always uh, – I loved it. It's a, it's a really goofy, arguably pretty bad movie, but I loved it when I was a kid, yeah. um, and I recognized him from that. Um, and he plays, like you said – well, what it seemed to be was kind of he was the Renfield to um, Dandridge's Dracula. That's what it seemed to be. Um, but there's also throughout the movie quite a bit of suggestion. You know, um, Dandridge is, is a ladies' man. He's constantly seducing women. His victims are women. Um, it turns out that blonde was a prostitute. Um, uh, Charlie, uh, I think just, you know, very soon after this, he sees through his bedroom window, his bedroom window faces Dandridge's bedroom window and he sees Dandridge seducing this woman, um, and, and almost biting her. And then they carry a body out uh, later on. So he knows that that lady has been killed. Um, so the, the vampire is a total ladies man, but there's definitely some homoerotic stuff going on between, uh, him and his manservant, Billy. Didn't you, you had to have caught that. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, later in the movie, it's almost bald faced when that scene, um, when he bites the woman, almost gets recreated, except um, Dandridge is down on his knees in front of him. And it's something that, as a kid, you know, would fly right by you, uh, but as an adult, you pick up on right away and go, oh, wait a minute, what's going on there? <laughs> well, yeah, the scene that you're talking about, it, it's, well, I guess uh, what happens is Billy uh, knows, you know, and so he tries to tell his mom, of course, she doesn't believe. He goes to Evil Ed for advice on what he should do, because he says, you know, this guy's a vampire, and he knows that I know. 
uh, and, and Ed gives them all, <laughs> and this is, I, I think a little bit of a flaw in the movie. You know, Charlie is supposed to be this guy who watches these vampire movies every single night, but he has to go to his friend to find out that crosses and garlic and holy water <laughs> are what you use against a vampire. I know one would think that somebody who knows that much about vampires would know these very common pieces of lore and um ed tells him that he doesn't have to worry too much because he has he has to be invited in so as long as he's not invited in he should be safe but when charlie goes home his mom calls him down from his room and says i want to introduce you to somebody and she has invited jerry over for a uh for a drink because <laughs> she's single and there's a hot guy moved in next door what's he doing here i invited him over for a drink what i invited him over why What's the matter, Charlie? Afraid I'd never come over without being invited first? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're quite right. Of course, uh, now that I've been made welcome, I'll probably drop by quite a bit. In fact, anytime I feel like it. With your mother's kind permission, of course. Oh, Jerry, anytime. <laughs> and it's that night that Jerry he does. He comes to the house that night um, and he surprises Charlie in his room and, and threatens him. He's throwing him around, but he's, he offers him a deal. He says, forget about me and I'll forget about you. Meanwhile, he's holding him up by his, his throat and kind of holding him out the window. And uh, I guess Charlie's not in the mood to negotiate. So he grabs a pencil off of his desk and stabs Dandridge through the hand with it, which seems to really pain him. Um, I don't know if it has to do with the fact that it's wood or, or whatever, but that's when uh, Jerry fully vamps out for the first time. Um, and, uh, you know, we get to see him in all his vampire glory. But uh, when, so he, he leaves after that, uh, the vampire. Um, but in just a little bit after Charlie, you know, just tells him, Mom, oh, nothing's going on. I was just having a bad dream or, or something like that. He goes back to his room and he gets a phone call and it's Jerry. And he says, I just destroyed your car, but that's nothing compared to what I'm going to do to you tomorrow night. Um, so we know he's safe for the night, but he's coming back. But when he's having that conversation on the phone, the manservant, Billy, is fixing or, or working on his hand. And like you said, um, he's kneeling down right in front of him um, in what is a very suggestive fashion. And after Charlie or after Dandridge is done talking to Charlie, he pulls down the shade, you know, and you get really, it's, it's very suggestive. Um, yeah. I, I read that, uh, that the, 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 the two actors, Chris Saran, Chris Sarandon and Jonathan Stark had no idea that the director was going for that, that subtle thing there with the homoerotic stuff. But when they saw the film, they were like, Oh, <laughs> so, so that's what he was going for and and it was you know the the writer director has said it, it certainly was intentional well and that's what kept it subtle you know they never played directly to it and so uh you know throughout the movie it's it's really really pretty brilliant actually because it allows the relationship to be just be something that it is because 
an actor might try to play into that too much, and then in every scene you get between the two of them, you get these furtive looks or these slight touches or things like that where it becomes a right. distracting element of the movie. Whereas this, I mean, heck, they've had this relationship for presumably hundreds of years, and so it's not an right. everyday you know, sort of thing for them. Uh, it's just part of their lives. They've got bigger fish to fry dealing with the kid next door, and that's going to be the focus of their attention, their glances, and, and you know, their motivations in every scene. You know, we've walked you through all these uh, these elements, but I just kind of want to call attention to them a little bit. Like, from that very beginning, that first scene where he sees the vampire almost bite the girl, uh, he looks mm-hmm. out the window, and uh, he he's a voyeur, you know, he's got to put his binoculars on to see it really close, but he sees this man raise his head and in no uncertain terms there are fangs in his mouth he's going to come down on the girl and as he does he slows down and he stops and he slowly turns and looks straight at him through the window Mm -hmm. which is something that is terrifying i mean you you, he thinks he's safe uh you know across the yard in this dark house looking out the window and and this vampire immediately sees him it sets this movie up from the very beginning i think that this kid is in peril and that's when Mm -hmm. um when dandridge slowly pulls down that shade and then when Charlie goes next door, as you mentioned earlier, and opens up the – tries to get into their basement after he's seen the coffin, and Billy comes out and confronts him, Billy's extremely confrontational. As he walks away, Billy just stares after him, almost like Billy's trying to pick a fight, you know? Right. Um, and then this later scene that you just that – you, that you walk through of him uh, coming over to his house – um, getting invited in by his mom and having that really tense scene between the two of them where he's clearly playing with him and then flat out confronts him in this room. He's so confrontational. This isn't the vampire who's going to slowly play with his guy next door. Uh, this isn't the burbs where you kind of wonder if, if, if Tom Hanks' character isn't a little insane or maybe thinking a little too much about this and reading into things that where he shouldn't be reading into things. Um, this is definitely a vampire. This vampire definitely knows that the kid knows from, from day one. And this vampire, not only is he not going to let the kid go, but he's going to kill the kid. Right. You know, And he's making that in no uncertain terms, and he's, he's pretty brutal about it. And to me, I, it's just terrifying. We've seen movies like this where the person thinks that a person's a vampire, but it plays out in this slow, mysterious, sometimes seductive fashion. You don't know if that person, uh, if the vampire is going to uh, you know, try to re- run him off the tracks. You don't know if the vampire is going to try to make him a vampire, too. It's not this real cat-and-mouse game. It's like a Tom and Jerry cat-and-mouse game. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's what makes this movie so scary, and that is the counterpoint to what is otherwise kind of a goofy, um, what could be a goofy premise. That's what I think makes this movie so deadly serious and works so well. Is like you said, the pace never lets up, and the pace is 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 a frightening, confrontational um, kind of theme. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. You know, I think that it really makes it very suspenseful that that the you know and, and Chris Sarandon plays it and Billy too you know the guy who plays Billy they play it very much we know you know <laughs> and uh you know there's there's no question there we know you know and and we're out to get you and uh Chris Sarandon just plays it with such 
confidence and he comes across as a pretty intimidating, scary guy. Um, and, uh, so yeah, there's, there's lots of tension and it, like you said, like we both mentioned it, it, it's maintained. There's, there's never any lull, um, because, uh, Charlie knows that he's in trouble. So he's got to really quickly figure out what he's going to do. He goes to find Peter Vincent. He thinks this guy can help me out. You know, he believes in vampires because Peter Vincent had said something about believing in vampires. Um, and when I was a kid, I didn't understand how he would just be able to go to some back lot and find this guy like, Oh, this guy just so happens to do this in your, in your hometown. I didn't realize that some of those shows, unless they were like Elvira and, and, you know, got picked up and syndicated and whatnot. Um, a lot of these guys were just people who either were local and were doing it on public broadcast or, um, you know, traveled around selling their show to various public broadcasts and just moving from city to city. Um, but he goes and he finds his idol, Peter Vincent, and um, he asks him for help. Um, and, and Peter Vincent, you know, humors him at first. Well, you do want my autograph, don't you? No. No, sir, I was curious about what you said last night on TV, you know, about believing in vampires. What about it? Were you serious? Oh, absolutely. Unfortunately, none of your generation seems to be. What do you mean? I have just been fired because nobody wants to see vampire killers anymore, or vampires either. Apparently all they want are demented madmen running around in ski masks, hacking up young virgins. (laughs) Um, But when... When Charlie says, well, I believe in vampires, there's one living next door to me, will you help me kill him? Um, Obviously, Vincent then uh, starts to think, wow, this kid is unhinged, and he gets the heck out of there. Um, And then right after that, uh, Amy and Evil Ed show up to Charlie's room, and he's got it all decked out with crosses (laughs) and candles and garlic, um, and they think he's crazy. So they go (laughs) to Peter Vincent and Amy gives Peter Vincent a $500 savings bond to get him to play along. And what they're going to do is – and what they actually do is they call up Dandridge and say – our friend is convinced you're a vampire. You're a nut. Can we bring him over to your house and stage this test so that he will see that you're not a vampire? And they say, you know, we could bring crosses. And he says, no, I'm a born-again Christian. That would be profane to me. They say, well, what about holy water? And he says, I don't know about holy water. Peter Vincent says, it's, it's not really holy water. All you got to do is drink it. Nothing will happen and we'll be on our way. Um, and so, uh, so that's exactly what they do. They go over and get... Uh, Charlie and and they all head over uh, to Dangerous's house and it's it, it sets it up for really kind of a a funny scene this this vampire test it, because it, it 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 really seems like both Dandrich and Billy are having fun playing this game knowing what Charlie knows and knowing that his friends and family think that he's crazy it's almost like they are enjoying <laughs> allowing his his friends to discredit him right in front of them yeah and and you also have mr vincent who's slipping right into this comfortable role and uh playing it up again for charlie's sake and uh, you get the sense that he too uh, is having a little bit of fun with it you know this real life uh, vampire hunter uh, role uh, the only role that he really can play <laughs> and mm-hmm. and that whole scene is just 
it's so tense because it's just so interesting. You have that interesting interplay that you mentioned, um, and you know that Charlie's just in deeper trouble after this because his friends aren't going to believe him. Um, But you also have that really tense moment where Dandridge gets the vial of water that he's supposed to drink. And are you sure that this is um, holy water? Positive. I saw Father Scanlon bless it down at St. Mary's myself. And of course what he means is, are you sure this is tap water? And Mr. Vincent is kind of nodding and smiling back like, oh yes, it's holy water. And, And Dandridge is hoping that he's supposed to take that as in, okay, it's definitely tap water and there's mm-hmm. this tense moment where even we wonder did he somehow get some holy water anyway and what's going to happen when right. he drinks this um it's a really cool moment of tension in the movie um and of course he drinks it and nothing happens and we're also knowing oh great what's going to happen to charlie and his friends because the other element in this scene is that dandridge is immediately taken with charlie's girlfriend amy and mm-hmm. you just get this horrible sense that, oh my gosh, and, and the look crosses Charlie's face too, that here in, in, here in trying to vanquish this vampire, he has dragged his girlfriend into the lion's den. And he has now suddenly mm-hmm. put her in peril as well. Because Dandridge, being ever the debonair and suave guy, goes up to her and captures her eyes. And she's obviously, under that, that vampire spell, it seems to be, kisses her right. hand. His thrall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And Charlie, and this is a moment that I kind of missed, uh, at least the first time I saw it, but Charlie's kind of pawing through the house earlier. And There's a scene earlier we neglected to mention, but it's not important, where yeah. he brings the police over, and he's taking it upon himself to paw through some of the things, and there's a portrait that has been half unpacked that has a girl that looks oddly familiar. And now we're getting that same vampire trope, which I've seen at least two or three other vampire movies, where uh, the oh, yeah. young you know, girl reminds him of one of his long-lost loves because the resemblance is very uncanny. And that's what happens to have happened here with Amy, is that she looks an awful lot like a, a former lover that he had, um, that he loved so much that he had a portrait painted of her in the house. So now, not only are they leaving here, uh, having not convinced uh, his friends that uh, this, this vampire next door, seemingly... But now Amy is a target for the vampire, and uh, Charlie is well, still in as much danger as possible, except for yeah. But one thing we yeah one thing we did fail to mention was it, you know it seemed like they were going to totally get away with it, but right at the last minute, uh, Peter Vincent pulls out this mirror that he had used um, as a prop in one of his vampire movies before, and he's not even pulling it out as part of the test. You know, it almost just looks like he's taking a second to look in the mirror, but he happens cigarettes in there. I think, is it also a cigarette? Ah, got it. Yeah. Um, and as he's fumbling one of those out, um, he catches all of the kids in the reflection and Dandridge is standing right next to him, but he has no reflection. Um, so at that point, Peter Vincent realizes that he is really a vampire, but it's not like he's going to do anything about it. In <laughs> fact, it just makes him want to get out of there even more quickly, and, and that's what they do. But not before he drops his mirror, and then um, Dandridge finds a little shard of the mirror and realizes, ah, they probably really do know. So now they are all in trouble. Um, and that, that leads up to, you know, there's a, an interlude where Charlie and 
Amy and Evil Ed are walking home. They're, they're walking Amy home. Um, and Evil wants to cut through this dark alley. And Charlie says, no way, we've got a vampire on our tail. Evil Ed still doesn't believe it. So, you know, uh, to be tough or whatever, he ends up going by himself. And he gets cornered by Dandridge. And there's actually this really kind of interesting scene where Dandridge, you know, corners him but says, You don't have to be afraid of me. I know what it's like being different. Only they won't pick on you anymore or beat you up. I'll see to that. All you have to do is take my hand. Here, Edward. Take my hand. Then Ed does take his hand. It's interesting, you know, uh, and that happens in these vampire things uh, a lot of the time. Um, the it's a seduction, you know, it's it's a promise of something, uh, and uh, so then Ed is is we presume um, either dead or is going to be turned. I think that scene is incredibly moving. Um, I, I for one, uh, and I guess you know we talked about the the, the evil Ed character being this totally un. Um, unlikable kind of guy. Annoying is probably the better way to put it, kind of guy. But knowing those guys and then knowing what their life must be like and what they go through, he immediately becomes extremely sympathetic, at least to me. Um, Yes. Oh, absolutely. Right? And doesn't that scene just cement it? It's like, oh, he has tears in his eyes and it's just these words. It's, It's Honestly, you don't even get the sense that it's the threat that he's going to die, but it is that promise that uh, that I can pull you out of this awkwardness, this unlikableness. Um, you will no longer be the downcast, but you will get this control. You will get this power that you may never have in your life, that you certainly haven't felt. And especially as a teenager, he, you see it in his eyes as he takes his hand that that's mm-hmm. what he wants and this guy can give it to him, and it's it's so sad. I mean, I almost cried it at is. that point. I honestly, I think for for a short, what has to be forty second scene, so incredibly well written, so incredibly well acted and staged. Um, and I and I just think it sets it up for later. Um, Ed gets even more sympathy from me. Um, one of these things. Oh gosh, makes, me too. Makes this movie stand out completely. Oh my gosh! Yeah, oh, I agree a hundred percent. And um, yeah, we'll we'll get there uh, because he does turn, um, and he, and he shows back up uh, later. Um, but you're absolutely right. I thought that that scene, you know, it almost makes me as a viewer feel bad for having judged him so harshly before. Yeah. Um, and and you know, there are those people who are just so obnoxious. But again, it's not like they're trying to be obnoxious. <laughs> They try so hard and fail so hard um, that they're hard to be around. But yeah, if you think about it from their perspective and how they really are very much alone, and that's really sad, you, you definitely get that empathy um, in this part. And I, so I agree with that 100%. Um, but I, was, I, I wanted to get into this next scene because I wanted to know what you thought of it. This is such an odd scene um, <laughs> where he, Dandrich, he's kind of chasing the kids uh, through the streets, but he doesn't even really have to chase them because he can take other forms. Like he can fly, he can turn into a bat and fly. We never see him turn into a wolf, but um, that's part of the lore of the vampires here is that they can also turn into wolves. Um, so every time they turn a corner, there he is. And they have, he eventually corners them in this like restaurant slash nightclub where there's a great big dance floor and while Charlie gets on a payphone and I think is calling uh, Peter Vincent to try to get his help, 
But meanwhile, there's this interesting seduction scene where Dandridge seduces Amy in the club. What are your what's your take on that scene? What did you what, what did you think? <laughs> well, first the obvious, it's total 80s. <laughs> the, right. From, from the definitely. music playing in the background to what we've talked about before, the the look across the room and the back and forth. Um pulls her into this dance floor and it's like they're the only people there even though they're completely surrounded by other dancers who are paying them no mind whatsoever. But I feel like that scene is incredibly sexy and it's very unusual uh, because, it again, it's this crowded nightclub, and he is not dancing with her in the sense that everyone around them is dancing, but dancing with her in this classical sense that, that ignores the, the style of music completely. You know, it's, it's a slow kind of dance. She's really taken by him, and he starts putting his hands on her, and then at one point, she seems to get a little bit of control and plays with mm-hmm. him a little bit, right? He puts his hands down, and it looks like his hand is going up her skirt a little bit, and then she kind of pushes it aside and, and jumps back away, and you think, oh, is, is she coming to her senses? Is she running? But it's really just to turn around and do one of those come-hither looks to pull him mm-hmm. in. And, and so it's this play, it's this back-and-forth play that you would expect um, two people who are very much in love with each other and extremely comfortable with each other to do, yet it's a seduction where he is presumably in control. The fact that she shows some elements of control at moments in here, I guess, shows that the seduction is complete. Mm-hmm. And it cements that so that maybe we're not we're not so surprised that she's not fighting it more later on well you know really you had mentioned that you had seen other movies like this and this is classic i mean this is right out of bram stoker's dracula um with uh dracula uh believing that um oh gosh i don't know if i'll be able to think of harker is that the the main guy's name anyway his his yeah his fiance mina uh, Dracula is infatuated with her in the same way that Dandridge is infatuated with Amy because she looks so much like, not even looks like, I mean, is, you know, it's identical to this long lost love. Um, it, it pulls directly uh, from that story and, and it works. And I like that. It feels like a good homage. The movie reminds me of a lot of movies. You know, it's definitely got shades of rear window. Um, in it, you know, where the kid witnesses something of his neighbor or the guy, excuse me, witness. I, I'm thinking of the weird Shia LaBeouf remake, but, um, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but you know, there's, there's lots of these elements pulled together and, uh, pretty artfully, uh, I think. And I like it. Um, the, the seduction, like you said, it kind of works as Dandridge tries to follow them out. He's stopped by bouncers. Um, and this was part that kind of surprised me because, he vamps out right in front of this whole club and everybody sees it, you know, and he fights these huge, uh, bodyguard or bouncers or whatever, and like throws them uh, across the room and stuff. And people are freaking out and everybody's kind of stampeding out. It surprised me because one would think that he would be trying to keep a low profile. Um, I I don't know. Maybe, maybe he moves around all the time. Maybe he only spends a week of time, uh, at a place. I, I don't know, but well, you know, I was I actually, believe it or not, watching this with my wife, Bick, who normally doesn't like these kind of movies. As we watch it, she, she made a remark. She said, well, gosh, now everybody's going to know who he is. And I thought, mm, 
It's a big crowded nightclub. First of all, no one, no one or two people is going to chase him out and try to track him down. Sure. I don't know. I, it almost seems like a, a brawl or something like that could happen all the time. And even if you had 20 or 30 people who said, the guy had red eyes, man, the guy had red eyes. I mean, who's really going to believe that? You know, it almost seems like I a, guess that's a, true. a very safe place to do it if you're going to do it and make a scene, you know, with the lights going on and people and maybe not all in their right minds and a lot of confusion and chaos. Um, that becomes his cover. But as you say, it, it does seem a little unusual, and I think that, again, is just part of the relentlessness of this guy. I mean, if he is going to vamp out in a nightclub full of people, what's going to stop this guy? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see that. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, he's only been in town for a couple of days, so it's not like any of those people would recognize him. Right, yeah. Um, he's, he's so the there, there's that, too. But anyway, eventually in the shuffle, uh, he gets Amy again, and, and he takes her out. And the next time we see her, Charlie... Um, runs to get Peter Vincent for help. Um, but the next time we see Amy, she wakes up in what we presume is Dandridge's house in front of this big fireplace, and she's in different clothes. She's in this flowing white dress, and Dandridge is in the room, and he has his shirt open. And as he approaches her after she's woken up, <clears throat> she asks some questions like, you know, where am I? Where's Charlie? He doesn't really respond. Um, but as he gets to her, he takes his shirt off and sits down in front of her uh and again you just get it appears you know vampires have that thrall thing where they can kind of um you know really seduce uh, these women into doing whatever they want and they have this really sensual scene together where they kiss a little bit i think and uh he's kind of at one point it looks like he's going in to bite her and she kind of pulls back a little bit but instead of trying to get away she reaches around the back and undoes her dress and, and lets her top down. Um, we don't see anything. Uh, it's all from the back. You know, I, I heard that the actress was not comfortable with the scene um, and uh, was very uncomfortable having the crew around. So um, she covered her breasts with duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we don't see anything, but uh, she doesn't resist. In fact, if anything, she kind of leans in and lets him bite. And we see, she, you know, they're making very sensual noises and we just see these trails of blood going down her back. Um, and we know that uh, she's in trouble. Um, we, we skipped a scene where evil Ed visits Peter Vincent um, as a, a vampire. Um, and he vamps out and he's really spooky looking. His, his vampire teeth are kind of janky and jut out in all different directions. Oh, oh, oh. Now, I used to admire you. You know that? Well, of course. That was before I found out what a fake you were. Peter Vincent, the great vampire killer of the Peter Vincent's able to overpower him because he gets his hands on a cross and burns a big uh, cross scar into his head. When Charlie actually goes to Dandridge's house, Peter Vincent shows up there and he's going to help him out. This is where we have our final act. The big showdown is going to go down in Dandridge's house. Uh, the TV host says, we should go around back. You know, it's more of an element of surprise. And just as he says that, the front door swings open. And so we, they know, we know that Dandridge knows they're there. Um, and all they can do is go in and, and you know, fight their hardest. And what a, what a great uh, final fight it is. Again, 
we've been to this house now three times, three or four times. And so we're familiar with the house. We're familiar with the scenery and the surroundings. We know that his girlfriend has been bitten. And so she's up there and she might be, you know, at this point, it, it, things seem pretty hopeless. And then you know that these vampire, that this vampire, Dandridge, is pretty relentless, pretty brutal, and is going to be toying with them and playing with them. And then you never know when Billy is going to pop in. Billy appears in this part on the staircase when they first come in. You know, they have a little banter with um, Dandridge. And Dandridge, you know, they walk into the house and Dandridge is up at the top of the stairs. And he says, Welcome to Fright Night. For real. At some point, Billy pops out and hits Charlie over the head with something and knocks him out. Um, And Peter gets scared and runs over to Charlie's house, which is right next door, and he's going to call the police. But when he gets there, he finds that the um, phone cords are cut. And so he's concerned about uh, Charlie's mom. Now, we know because she said it early that she has started working the, the late shift. So fortunately for her, she was not in the house. But when he goes upstairs, he finds somebody in her bed, and that somebody ends up being Evil Ed who is even more grotesque than he was before. And that was another thing that I really liked about this movie is that there were different stages of the vampirism. Sometimes they would turn just a little bit. Sometimes it would be far more dramatic. It didn't seem sloppy. It seemed intentional. Like there were just varying degrees of how much they vamped out. And I liked that. But he's fully vamped out here and he threatens Peter Vincent. Peter Vincent runs off and he trips and falls and breaks this like, uh, hall table right at this at the ledge uh, of the stairs and from around the corner comes running a wolf which we presume is evil ed who has now turned into wolf form and he it's a, a really cool shot you know i don't know if they had a you know, i don't i don't know how they did it but you know it's kind of slow motion the wolf running towards the camera um, and then the wolf leaps on to peter but because peter had broken the table he picks up uh one of the legs and uses it as a stake and impales the wolf and throws it over the ledge where it lands and is clearly mortally wounded and this is another one of those scenes that i just thought i i was surprised how much it moved me um and i have a feeling this is what you were alluding to earlier oh yeah yeah vincent comes down the stairs um and the wolf is twitching, and as the wolf is twitching, it's slowly turning, and it's turning uh, kind of into a half-wolf, half-man creature with some very impressive special effects, I think, practical mm-hmm. effects. And then uh, as he turns slowly back into Evil Ed, Vincent just looks at him, and the look at him starts out as a look of disgust, and then it very slowly becomes a look of pity as he sits and watches mm-hmm. Evil Ed resurface in this body and change back into his self, and then die. And he seems like he gets a few words out. What are those words? What does he say? I, I don't remember if he said anything, but even like as he's transforming, even when he's still like half man-wolf, he's whimpering and, and crying, and he reaches out his hand um, to Peter Vincent, almost like, help me. Um, and, and Peter starts to reach out and then he withdraws. I I think that he's a little reluctant because obviously it could be dangerous. Um, but as evil Ed eventually regains completely his, uh, human form, you know, he's still reaching out and he's crying 
And you, God, I just felt so bad for this kid. You know, like, yeah, he was a monster. And when he was a monster, he uh, was very dangerous and, you know, evil or whatever. But when it comes down to it, he was just a kid. And as noxious as he may have been, he didn't ask for any of this. Um, and now here he lay dying. And, and just that image of um, a naked teenage boy dead on the floor, you know, having been impaled with this leg. Um, it was, I, I, I was really sad. Yeah. And, and here he is, you know, he's, he's been a loner his whole life and really he's, he's dying alone. Uh, the fact that he reaches out for that one person who's there that could provide him at least a little bit of comfort uh, in his last uh, minute and Vincent's reluctant to do that. Uh, it just, it's just tragic. And you can see also reflected in Roddy McDowell's face, I think just because he's such a good actor, um, you can see that tragedy reflected like he witnesses, he fully understands that he kind of sees the significance of this, and it bothers him as well. It, it, you don't mm-hmm. get the sense that he's as bothered by the fact that I just killed somebody as this is so pathetic and this is so sad and um, and wow, you know, he's just taking in the sadness of the scene. It's, it is so touching. Right. You you know you just don't expect that in a movie, and you're certainly not going to see it in many horror comedies. Yeah, it bothered me a lot. That scene does. Yeah, we we cut back from there back into uh, uh, Dandridge's house, and he is taking the knocked out Billy uh, into the room where Amy is, and he drops him there, and he gives him a steak and says, "You're going to need this by dawn." Um, and and so when Billy turns Amy over, she is a vampire. He's very upset, Peter comes back over and sneaks upstairs um, and he gets uh, Charlie out and they're trying to sneak out when they are confronted by first, I think, Dandridge again. Yes, they they see Dandridge at the top of the stairs and um, Dandridge just kind of walks away and they're not, they don't understand why until they realize that Billy is slowly walking up behind them. Peter has a gun and he points it at Billy's head and says, don't, I will shoot. If you take another step, don't make me shoot. Like he gives this guy a bunch of chances and, uh, eventually he shoots him in the head. And we see after just a very brief period of time, Billy get up behind, uh, behind these guys who have their back to him. And he keeps, he starts walking back up the stairs again. Uh, I read that, uh, the filmmaker has admitted that, um, he, he kind of borrowed that scene from, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, and I haven't seen that in so long, but I do remember that them on the stairs and, and Frankenstein coming or Frankenstein's monster coming up behind them. But eventually they turn around and ben- Vincent shoots him several more times, but nothing works. I, I think I think it's Charlie stakes him, and I don't really know what was going on here, and there's no explanation <laughs> for it. So you know that's fine. You know I guess we're just supposed to think that Billy is just some other sort of creature, or maybe some different type of vampire. I don't know, like because the staking works. He starts to disintegrate. First it's slime, eventually it turns to dust, and he's gone. But we know that he's not the same kind of vampire as Dandridge because he can walk around during the day. Did you, do you have any theories, or is that just going to be one of those great unexplained mysteries? I feel like, yeah, he's some kind of creature, uh, but yeah, you're right. I think it's, it's totally unexplained. I have no theories. Obviously, he can walk around during the day. Obviously, he can protect him. Obviously, he's some kind of immortal, and I get the sense that they've had this relationship for quite a while. But you're right. Mm-hmm. The fact that his death is so different 
uh, also, I think, clues you in to he's something more. But it doesn't tell you what. But right. it is – and this is borderline cheesy. I, I almost feel like they were going for a little bit of comedy here with his death because as he stands there and parts of his flesh and things melt away, you get this green goop that comes out and kind of flows mm-hmm. over. And it's so long and protracted that all they do is just stand and stare at him almost in this weird fascination like – when is this guy going to finish dying? <laughs> because mm-hmm. because uh, it's just so long. And, and he finally basically falls into nothing until he becomes nothing but a skeleton, which then falls down on the stairs, shatters, the bones roll down, and this skull, almost a chattering skull, really slides up, mm-hmm. and, and it's all that's left staring back at them. Um, I thought right. it, was, it was a neat moment in this movie uh, that, had just a hint of 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 comedy to it, um, even though it was it was obviously also a, a bit horrific. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was effective. I just didn't know what was going on, but yeah, that's okay. Yeah, weird, very weird. Well, this really, I mean, at this point, um, Dandridge is kind of fluttering around the outside of the house. Yeah, you, know, you get the impression that he's kind of um, flying um, and, and landing at various points. You see him cross windows. Uh, you also hear him from outside in this very deep voice tell Amy, Amy, prove how much you love to me. Kill them both. And so then she's after them too, and he's after them. Um, and eventually somehow he bursts through. There's this big stained glass window at the top uh, of, of his staircase, and he bursts through that and uh, Peter Vincent is confronting him there. Um, but really, he's really just kind of stalling him there because we see from behind him that the sun is coming up. Um, and I thought that was going to be it. I thought the sun was going to come up. He was going to disintegrate and everything would be fine. But when he realizes the sun comes up, he turns into this monstrous bat. Like it, it looks like a monster bat. It doesn't look like a natural bat. And he attacks Peter and Peter struggles with it and it bites uh, Charlie. Uh, but eventually they're able to throw it off and it heads down into the basement where we know the coffin is. And so they head down there. Peter is looking for Dandridge and Charlie is looking for Amy. And they both find the one they're looking for. Amy is now fully vamped out. <laughs> Her hair has grown like six inches. Her boobs have gotten bigger. Um, <laughs> and, and this is where we first see her with those teeth that, that are iconic from the movie cover. And, and I just, it, it's, <laughs> I read interestingly that um, the director always wanted one of the vampires to have that sort of mouth at some time. But when he told the props guy, the props guy said, I don't have time to do it. We're in too much of a crunch. But he said, I'll, I'll tell you what, or the makeup guy, I'm not sure. Um, he said, I'll make something, but I'm going to have to slop it together really quick. So if I make it, you have to promise that you'll only show it for a split second. Um, and he said, okay, that's fine. And then as it turned out, this these teeth feature so prominently in this last scene, and they used it on the box art. Um, so I guess uh, the director liked it enough um, to use it. And it is really effective. Um, those two, Charlie and Amy Tussle, Peter really becomes the hero. He's, he's fighting with uh, Dandridge. Um, eventually, Dandridge kind of corners him. But at that point, Charlie starts throwing things and breaking out the blacked-out windows, which keeps Dandridge at bay because he can't come into the light. And there's more struggle, more windows getting broken. Uh, eventually, Dandridge tries to jump back into his coffin, but at the very last second, um, Peter uh, closes it. And... 
does he stake him one final time or is it just because I think it's just because the light eventually hits him full on. There's one last um, and, blast and, of light. Yeah. That hits him full on. Right. And Dandridge very dramatically is thrust back uh, against the wall where he kind of explodes, burns up um, for a moment is just a skeleton and then he's gone. And that's a really neat bit too, because uh, as he burns up and, and into a skeleton, but it's almost a half man, half bat skeleton, as though he were in the middle of transforming into his bat-like uh, stage when uh, he, when the light hit him, or as he's struggling out of it. And so, again, just like the the jaws and the facial features of these different vampires, it's these aren't humans with fangs. These are other creatures that can also look human. And this movie, right. like. A, unlike a lot of vampire movies, really hammers that home. The the guys who did the special effects on this movie had just gotten off of Ghostbusters. They did all the effects mm-hmm. for Ghostbusters, and they had really honed things there so that when they came to this movie, they were a little better equipped, a little better skilled. They knew what worked. And apparently this skeleton of this final scene here uh, as Dandridge disintegrates and goes away is something that they created for Ghostbusters for the librarian scene, but it was deemed too scary for that PG uh, movie. And so they had it kind of in their back pocket and they said, Hey, this kind of looks like uh, a vampire slash bat would look. And so they used it in this movie. And again, one of those instances where it, it was clearly kind of an accident, something that was reused from something else, but I think just really worked. It was so much cooler than just having a, what looked more like a human skeleton under there sort of sort of disappearing oh yeah yeah the effects throughout are really good Uh, i really and it's and the movie is shot really well uh, i think um if if i were to criticize anything i i would say that some of the acting is not that great Mm. um you know i i i think that charlie is a likable character um but the acting seems a little wet behind the ears every once in a while um and i kind of felt I don't know. Um, the, Amanda Beers, who plays Amy, I like her, but I think that I just have such a preconceived notion of her from Married with Children that it's uh-huh. difficult for me to appreciate her in this kind of young, sexy role. Um, so maybe that's just more about my perceptions. Um, but overall, I think it is really well done. Um, the, the very last, you know, the cap at the end is, um, and it's really funny. Uh, we, we come back, we, scan back into Charlie's room at night. Um, and it's the same exact, uh, kind of shot from the very beginning. In fact, on the TV screen, you hear whoever's on the TV screen say, we're right back where we started from. Uh, and we certainly are, you know, it's a virtually identical scene. They're kind of making out on the bed. Peter Vincent's on the TV. Peter Vincent kind of gives them a little shout out, uh, from the TV. And then, uh, Charlie, happens to walk by the window and he thinks he catches a glimpse of something in the window at Dandridge's house. Um, but, uh, he looks and he doesn't see anything. So he goes back to Amy. Um, meanwhile, the camera pans back over there and we see these glowing lights and then we hear evil Ed's laugh. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> um, so there's maybe some suggestion that he didn't die after all. And I was reading, I guess this movie is, is you know, has such a cult following that these guys regularly appear on panels at horror conventions and those types of things. And at some point, I think maybe for the 20th anniversary or something, they, ha- they held a panel or, or maybe it was just an interview. But the director, they, somebody asked the director, of all of the films that you've made, 
which one would you be most interested in returning to and doing a direct sequel to? Um, and he said, Fright Night. He said he always had this idea in his mind that he would like to re, uh, he'd like to bring back the original cast and, and continue the story where it's something like 20 years later and Charlie is now a single father of two teenage boys and, and they move back into Charlie's mother's house um, and the boys start to suspect that there's something weird going on in the house next door. And as it turns out, it's evil Ed trying to bring back to life, uh, Dandridge. Of course that never happened. There was a, there was a sequel, um, just a few years later. Uh, I don't remember it well, so it must not have been terribly memorable. And then of course, you know, there were the, there's the remake, um, with Colin Farrell. Yeah. And there, there was a sequel to that, which had nothing to do with the original Fright Night Part 2. Um, but the property, you know, has remained uh, in the public eye, and uh, it's, it's, it's got a pretty solid fan base. Um, so I have a feeling that people are going to be watching this for quite a while. Have you seen the, the remake? Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it, somebody asked the director about it, and he said, you know he appreciated what they were trying to do, but they took all of the heart and all of the humor out of it. Uh, and he said he hated what they did to the character, the characters of evil Ed and the character of, uh, Peter Vincent. They make Peter Vincent a horror magician in the veins of, Oh, what's that really douchey guy with the long black hair? Chris. Yeah. They made him a Chris angel character. Um, and it was lame. I mean, the effects are pretty good. Um, and it, it's dark and kind of scary, but it's, it's nowhere near the quality of the original. I don't think. What is it with these horror like remakes? They're just, they almost always suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, there's, there's not very many that have, have been very good. Yeah. It, it, it did well, you know, at the box office and, and well enough to get a sequel. And again, like I said, it's 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 held its own. And I think it still stands up. You know, there are things that definitely date it, but the cinematography is, is good enough that it doesn't feel like you're watching something that's antiquated and, and um, that's, you know, it, it still holds up, I think. Oh, I think if you took the 80s music out of it. Um, you wouldn't even know when it took place. I mean, I, I don't think it's dated at all uh, in that sense. And you could just, you know, release it tomorrow. C- Chris Sarandon does such a fantastic job as yeah, a sexy... he does. He's a great actor. Yeah, he really is. Um, and, you know, as a kid growing up and really only seeing him in Princess Bride, you know, this is a yep. whole other side to him uh, that's actually not really that different of a character, really. But, yeah, it's just a, not, he's not playing it so goofy here uh he's deadly serious and i think that's what really makes this movie work is that as we said earlier even though it's a comedy it's deadly serious and never pokes fun at its subject matter right well thank you again for listening to another episode if you enjoyed it please share it with a friend you can find us on itunes or stitcher like our facebook page and join the conversation over there on social media we'd love to hear your comments we'd like to hear what you thought of this movie and also uh, any other movies in the future you'd like us to review please let us know until then i'm todd and i'm craig with two guys and a chainsaw